most years of my life, I've been involved in one way or another with, with basketball. And, and even though I'm not helping coach this year, uh, so we can, as time allows, follow our sons a little more closely while they play, but um, even though I'm not helping coach, it's hard for me to not feel excited by this time of year because this is, this is the last week of preseason high school basketball. And every year, that's a very exciting time, because the only thing we've done by this point is the varsity has beaten up on the JV, and so every, and everybody's undefeated, and it just every, that there's so much hope, and it doesn't have to be basketball. I know it's that time for, uh, for, for our wrestlers here, but also like spring training baseball is this way, those late summer football practices and volleyball practices are that way. Right, it's uh, hope springs eternal, uh, and, then, and then the first game is going to come, and half the teams are going to win that first game, and then, oh man, and then the, the people really get optimistic, and it's just, it's a very exciting time, even though, unfortunately, as we all know, every season doesn't live up to the expectations and the hope of the preseason, and that is what today's passage reminds me of. Because in last week's passage, Israel got its first ever king, a man named Saul from the tribe of Benjamin. And thus far, King Saul hasn't done any kinging yet. He hasn't led anything. He hasn't done it. He's like in in King Spring training right now. Today, he's going to see like his first action. He's going to win his first game, so to speak. He's going to get off to a great start. However Saul's career is going to go, again, spoiler alert, it's not, not great. But it starts oh so good. Let's read our passage today. This is, this is the high point of Saul's entire reign. It's also his first, um, his first game, so to speak, of Saul's spring training. This is um, 1 Samuel chapter 11. This is the New American Standard Version that we'll read together now. Now, Nahash the Ammonite came up and besieged Jabesh-Gilead. And all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, Make a covenant with us, and we will serve you. But Nahash the Ammonite said to them, I will make it with you on one condition, that I will gouge out the right eye of every one of you. Thus I will make it a reproach on all of Israel. The elders of Jabesh said to him, let us alone for seven days that we may send messengers throughout the territory of Israel. Then, if there is no one to deliver us, we will come out to you. Then the messengers came to Gibeah, where Saul lived, and spoke these words in the hearing of the people. And all the people lifted up their voices and wept. Now behold, Saul was coming from the field behind the oxen. And he said, what's the matter with all the people that they weep? And so they related to him the word the men of Jabesh. Verse 6, Then the Spirit of God came upon Saul mightily, or rushed upon Saul, 
when he heard these words, Saul became very angry. He took a yoke of oxen and cut them in pieces and sent them throughout the territory of Israel by the hand of messengers, saying, Whoever does not come out after Saul and after Samuel, so shall it be done to his oxen. Then the dread of the Lord fell on the people, and they came out as one man. He numbered them in Bezek, and the sons of Israel were 300,000, and the men of Judah, 30,000. They said to the messengers who had come, Thus you shall say to the men of Jabesh-Gilead, Tomorrow, by the time the sun is hot, you will have deliverance. So the messengers went and told the men of Jabesh, and they were glad. And the men of Jabesh said to Nahash the Ammonite, Tomorrow we will come out to you, and you may do to us whatever seems good to you. Verse 11. The next morning Saul put the people in three companies, and they came into the midst of the camp at the morning watch and struck down the Ammonites until the heat of the day. Those who survived, those Ammonites, were scattered, so much so that not two of them were left together. Then the people said to Samuel, Who is he that said, Shall Saul reign over us? Bring them in, that we may put them to death. But Saul said, Not a man shall be put to death this day, for, the, for today the Lord has accomplished deliverance in Israel. Then Samuel said to the people, Come and let us go to Gilgal and renew the kingdom there. And so all the people went to Gilgal, and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal uh, again. And there they also offered sacrifices of peace offerings before the Lord. And there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. There's our story, and we start this morning with a local problem. This may turn into, it will turn into a national issue, but it doesn't start that way. In, in verse 1, we learn that a man named Nahash the Ammonite, and i got to stop right there and tell you, we have a great name for a bad guy right here. This is not his name given at birth. There's no way, because he's an Ammonite and he wouldn't have spoke Hebrew. Uh, the, the word Nahash is the Hebrew word for snake. Uh, if, you, if you read Genesis in Hebrew, it is Eve was deceived by the Nahash, the serpent, the snake. So this is his nickname from the locals. He is the Ammonite snake. What a great name for a bad guy. They probably didn't call him that to his face, be my guess. But anyway, the Ammonite snake has laid siege to uh, a town in Israel named Jabesh-Gilead. And I, this, is a, this isn't the best map for this time period, but I, I wanted to show you these colored splotches are the enemies of Israel. This dot right here is Jabesh-Gilead. Here's the Ammonite kingdom. So they're right there by the Ammonites and that's where they are. And he, he laid siege to, which means he doesn't attack it exactly. He surrounds the city. He doesn't let supplies in or out, basically. And it just kind of starves the people out. And he waits. And in true uh, Hebrew narrative fashion, we're not given any details, but we can tell things aren't going great. Because by the time the story opens, the men of Jabesh are ready to surrender. They come out, the first thing we, we really read, they come out to, the, to, the, the, to Snake Boy and they say, make a covenant with us and we will serve you. We would say they sue for peace. They come out and cry uncle. They say, all right, you win. 
What are the terms? Let us eat and we'll, we'll work for you. They're thinking this will be like protection money. That's the way this worked, like the mob took over. I keep doing my job. They come to collect and take part of my harvest, my, my whatever, and then they don't beat us up anymore. But the Ammonite snake is not ready to let him off so easily. He presumably figures, if I take this siege off, it's only a matter of time before they get their strength back and rebel. So he says this, I'm not ready uh, to, to just make a treaty with you and lift the siege. I will, though, if you let me gouge out everyone's right eye. He sounds nice, doesn't he? Now, there's two reasons why he would do this. Well, three. One, he's a jerk. There's two other reasons. There's a military reason behind this. He wants the men of this town to be able to farm because that's how he's going to profit from them. Guys without right eyes can still farm, but they don't make great soldiers. And here's why. One, you can't be an archer, a right-handed archer very well without a right eye to aim with. But even in the infantry, you carry your, your, your shield in your left hand, right? And your sword in your right hand. And if you don't have a right eye, you kind of, right? You have to constantly expose yourself in ways you normally, normally wouldn't. But there's another reason why he wants to do this. This guy uh, wants to make a reproach. He wants to pour out humiliation on all of Israel he won't be the last guy to want to do that uh, in the history of the world, not by a long shot. But he wants everyone to see a bunch of one-eyed Israelites walking around as proof that they're humiliated, subjugated, and all that stuff. So that's, that's the deal at Jabesh-Gilead. The men of Jabesh-Gilead, when they hear the terms of surrender, go, you know, maybe we need to think about this. Maybe we're not quite ready to surrender yet. And so they say, hey, give us a week. We're going to send messengers throughout the territory of Israel and see if someone will come and deliver us or save us. It may sound strange to us, but Snake Boy says, okay. This might be because um, this siege can't keep every individual from running out of town at night or something. You can't get cargo in to feed the city. So that may be part of it. But really, I don't think Nahash the Ammonite feels he has anything to worry about. And here's why. This is the end of the time of the judges, basically. And in the book of Judges, Israel... People within Israel had a very like local existence, regional existence. They didn't have a real national identity. They certainly didn't have a national military. So these people were under siege. The folks up here, the folks down here, the folks over here didn't care all that much. This happened all the time in the book of Judges. Uh, so Nahash the Ammonite, Old snake boy thinks, go ahead and ask. Nobody's come yet. Nobody's ever come to help another uh, area of the country out. That's not the way Israel works. And besides, he probably thinks, the more the merrier. I'll gouge their eyes out too. 
I want to pour out reproach on all of Israel. Anyway, so that's, that's the situation. And then these messengers do get out, uh, and they take a message presumably throughout Israel. But we just read they get to this green dot that I made rather poorly on this map. That's Gibeah. This is where Saul lives. It's quite a ways. It's right by Jerusalem. Jerusalem's not a part of Israel, not controlled by Israelites yet. More on that later. Keep coming back. But notice, Jerusalem is in the land of, of Benjamin. It's in Saul's. It's really close to where Saul lived. Messengers get there. And again, Saul has not really taken to this whole being king of Israel yet. Messengers get to town. Saul is nowhere to be found. He's just out plowing his dad's land, working on the farm. That's all he wants to do. He didn't want to be king to begin with. When Saul gets to town, though, he hears the uproar. People are weeping. They're publicly showing their displeasure as the way this culture worked. They weren't weeping loudly enough to actually do anything about this, but they're commiserating with the messengers who come and basically say, we sure could use some help or a snake man is going to gouge out all of our eyes. Saul gets to town. This is what happened. Why are they weeping? He kind of hears the report. And verse 6 is a hinge point, a pivot point for Saul's life, um, for this book, and really for the nation of Israel as a whole. Because Saul's going to take this local issue and make it a national issue. But we haven't seen anything from Saul yet that would tell us that would be his natural inclination, right? Do you remember where Saul was if you were here last week? Do you remember where Saul was during his own coronation ceremony? He was hiding, like literally hiding in some baggage. They had to drag him out of there to make him king. This is not part of who Saul is to, to lead the nation. So this is significant when we read in verse 6, the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words, and Saul became very angry. Here's one of those places in the Bible where we are reminded that anger in and of itself is not sinful. Right? We don't become angry. We don't have anger because we're sinners. We have anger because we are made in the image of God. God has anger. It's called the Old Testament, right? No, not, that's not true. That's not true. God has anger and he has yet to sin, never will, right? Now the problem for us is, you see, God can be angry but not be consumed by his anger. God's anger never controls any part of him any more than his other attributes do. His anger never is stronger than his, his mercy, his love, his grace. Right? That's where we mess up. That's why James warns us, tells us, the anger of man never accomplishes the righteousness of God. But we have anger. It's supposed to be our sin barometer. When, there is, when sin is around us, we're supposed to feel anger. 
is when we start to use it as our fuel, that's when we get bent out of shape, but that's probably a sermon for another day. The Spirit of God rushes on Saul, and suddenly this docile farmer is an angry king. And in verse 7, Saul has decided to be the king of Israel full-time. Saul quits farming in verse 7. How do we know? Well, he takes some oxen, presumably it's the ones he's been following behind, and he cuts them, kills them and cuts them in pieces. Right? He doesn't put them on bigoxen.com when it's ready for him to retire. He cuts them it's like he just lit his tractors on fire. And then Saul uses those oxen to deliver a different message than the one that came to Gibeah. Now my assumption is, we're not told this, but my assumption is when those messengers left Jabesh Gilead, they didn't just come only to Gibeah. They went everywhere and they didn't get much of a response just because that's the way Israel worked. So here's what Saul does. The Spirit of God changes Saul's heart because this is not who Saul normally would be. He's a different person. He's angry. I'm the king. There are foreigners attacking an Israelite city. This can't stand. And so he cuts his oxen up and he sends messengers with a different message. He cuts off a little uh, hunk of ox and he sends these messengers out toting along a hunk of rotting oxen flesh with this message from Saul. Either volunteer for the Israelite army or this is what's going to happen to your oxen. Hugs and kisses, King Saul. That's the message, right? And I'll be darned, he's got an army. He numbers that army. There's 300,000 uh, Israelite fighting age men. There's 30,000 from the tribe of Judah. You can already see kind of the division there. More on that several books later. But this probably isn't who marches into the field that day. That's like the, the total fighting strength of Israel. I'm going to tell you the story of the successful campaign but I want to make you aware of something that the author of this book, whoever he was, probably still Samuel at this point, though that gets handed off later. To his original audience, he's sending some pretty clear signals that aren't clear to us. They weren't clear to me. If I wouldn't uh, have, have read commentaries, I would have missed this. But the author is picturing King Saul as if he is being turned into like a super judge, like from the book of Judges, Judge because there's a lot of stuff in this story that's extremely similar to some stuff from the book of Judges. Here's the things. Um, there's one judge in the book of Judges, that's why I always use this translation, that the Spirit of God rushed upon with the same words as here. And that guy's name was Samson. The guy with the long hair and a weakness for the ladies. If you know that story, that's Samson. Okay, the Spirit of God rushed upon Samson. The Spirit of God rushed upon Saul. Uh, Saul is called, he's pictured as a deliverer or a savior, same word in Hebrew, in this passage. 
Um, Othniel and Ehud, two famous judges from the books, uh, book of Judges, they were called that same thing, deliverer, savior. Uh, Saul's going to def- divide his army and attack with a divided force. What judge did that? Anybody know? Um, that is, uh, now, now that I ask you that, I can't. That, that is uh, the guy that reduced his army, say Shibboleth, lap out of the water. Gideon, thank you. I'm glad you guys are here. I'd have been here all morning trying to come up with that. So Gideon did that. Um, Seems like there was... Oh, here's another thing. Saul cutting up these oxen and using the the rotting flesh of an animal to send a message to raise an army. That happened in the book of Judges. Only it wasn't an oxen. It was a person. It's a really disgusting and awful story. Um, And it was... It was used, that person's body was used to raise an army to fight against Saul's ancestors, Saul's people. And so Saul is sort of undoing that sin. It's like, again, Saul is being made little composite parts of the best of the judges. He's kind of turning into super judge here. Oh, and one last thing. Look at what Saul says in this message. He invites, and this is in his, in his recruiting pitch or threat, whatever you want to call it. He tells people they should come out after Saul and after Samuel. If you've been here over the last couple of weeks, that's how God said the kingdom's supposed to work. God's supposed to be the ultimate sovereign. The king is supposed to serve God. And guess how the king is supposed to hear what God wants him to do? The prophet Samuel. So Saul is just getting off to a perfect start here. He's doing things just right. And his first campaign is an overwhelming success. Verses 9 through 11 is the story of of Saul's first military campaign. Um, Remember, if you you glance up at verse 3, uh, the, the people of Jabesh-Gilead sent out the message. They're hoping that someone can save them, deliver them. By, uh, by the time Saul's ready here, he, says, he sends those messengers back inside Jabesh-Gilead and says, deliverance, salvation is going to come to you tomorrow by the time the sun is, is good and up, by the time the sun is hot. When the men of Jabesh Gilead hear that, they're very happy, obviously. In verse 10, uh, they start their own dif- disinformation campaign inside the besieged city. They send word to Snake Boy, um, the, the guy that's besieged the city, and they say, hey, tomorrow we're going to come out to you and we're going to bring our eyeballs with us and you can uh, do, uh, do what you want. The hope is they let their guard down. Maybe they celebrate a bit. And then the next day, verse 11, Saul places his army in three groups. He, does, he, he attacks the Ammonites from three different uh, directions simultaneously. And the result is a complete rout. Such a rout that we're told uh, the surviving uh, Soldiers of the Ammonites, there's no companies, there's no organized groups left. There are, there are no two soldiers together. So that everybody doesn't die, but the, uh, the picture is of a complete rout. And then the aftermath of that battle 
is extremely important, more important probably than the action. The first thing that starts to happen after Saul has saved Jabesh from the Ammonites is Saul's supporters, they've just, they've just whipped the enemy. They're all riled up. They've still got their weapons, right? And they start to look around and say, hey, where are those people who were, you know, when Saul was being sort of sworn in, where are those people who were saying, can this guy really be the king? Where are those naysayers? Where are Saul's detractors? We got plenty of weapons. We got, we got plenty of uh, firepower and vigor and anger. Let's round up Saul's political enemies and get rid of them. That seems, right, we want to execute them. We want to kill Israelites who are opposed to Saul. That seems sort of bloodthirsty to us. It's also exactly how political power has worked most often over the history of the world. This is a tale as old as time. Take power, consolidate enough power, and then kill all of your political enemies to make sure you stay in power. Like, that's, that's the tale as old as time. That's the way this works. And by the way, I am convinced on both sides of our political spectrum, if folks could get away with it, they would be more than willing to start doing that right here, right now. This is still in us. But look at what Saul does. Saul says, so the people are asking Samuel, the prophet, won't you ask God where the non-supporters are? Saul doesn't wait for a, uh, for a response. Saul says, uh-uh. No one, no one else is going to be killed this day, but pay attention to the why. No one else is going to be killed on this day because for, here's why, because the Lord has accomplished deliverance in Israel. Do you hear that? Here's what Saul just said. You, my, I'm, I'm, I'm grateful for your support and the effort in the battle, but you want to kill my political enemies because you think I saved the day and I didn't. You want to kill my political enemies because you want me to stay in control. You want to do what will please me because I'm going to be in control and because you think I delivered Israel and you're all wrong and you're coming about this wrong because the Lord saved Israel today, not Saul. This is extremely admirable. And it's more proof that Saul, in some ways, isn't like Saul anymore because Saul is being controlled by the Holy Spirit that rushed upon Saul. The Holy Spirit always seeks to see God glorified. This is so mature. This is such a great start. It's just perfect. It's just right. 
by Saul. Which is why the, the author uses that word for save or deliverance three times. The people ask for deliverance. Saul shows up with an army and sends word, your deliverance is at hand. But then after the battle, he says, it was the Lord that did it. It's the Lord that did it. And it's so perfect. When we read this, did anybody think, why are we crowning the king again? Didn't we do that last chapter? Did anybody think that? We get to the end of this, and Samuel says, hey, let's go to Gilgal and have us a coronation ceremony. Didn't we just do this last week? Here's how fired up Samuel is by this Saul. Samuel's like, now this is, a, this is a monarchy I can get behind. This is not a king like the rest of the nation's kings. Every other king, what would he be saying after he led this successful campaign? He would say, look who your deliverer is here. Nobody's done more for Israel than me. All that stuff. And Saul refuses. So Samuel says, hey, let's go. I can get behind this now. Let's go get together. Let's have another coronation ceremony. This is so awesome. Everyone celebrates. And that's the story. Now, unfortunately, this is the high point. If, if, you're, if you're tracking Saul's uh, progress, right, We've done this. He's been hiding. Uh, right now, we're at the high, and starting next week, we're going to fall off a cliff with Saul. But this is perfect. And this passage, it probably teaches us other things. But I want to leave you with one thing, this passage. It teaches one very powerful and very important lesson, and that's this. The Holy Spirit makes an incredible difference in the life of those who are under his control. The Holy Spirit makes an incredible difference in the life of those that are under his control. If you have your Bible open and you glance up at the end of the last chapter, at the end of verse 10, some of Saul's detractors were asking a very important question. It's kind of how the last chapter Closed. They looked at Saul, the guy that was hiding during his own coronation ceremony. They had to ask God where he was. They drug him out. They sort of forced him to be king. And people asked, what was that question? Anybody have that open? What was the question that they asked? How can this man, what? How can this man save us? How can this guy deliver us? Chapter 11 answers that question. You see how? How can Saul, this guy who doesn't even want to be king, he wants no part of this. How can Saul save Israel? You know how? If he's controlled by the Holy Spirit, he can. The only way Saul can save Israel is if Saul understands Saul can't save Israel. But there's a God who can. That's why it's so important to understand Saul says, we're not going to start killing my enemies. We don't need to figure out how to kill everyone else to keep me in control because I saved Israel. God saved Israel. We need to figure out how to make sure God stays in control of us. Not our enemies, 
We can't control what they do with God and the Holy Spirit. But we have some say on what the Holy Spirit does right in here. God is who saved Israel. Let's figure out how to make sure God stays in control of us. And if God stays in control of me as the king and us as the supporters, then God will be in control around here. And that's what we're after. Now, that doesn't last. But we see this very brief little snapshot of what it looks like when it happens. The Holy Spirit changes people. If the Holy Spirit can change Saul from the tribe of Benjamin, it can change you and it can change me. He can change you and he can change me. And I want to make sure that you know something. If you have or if you do decide to make Jesus Christ your Savior, your Deliverer, which means you understand what he did at the cross. He died accepting, absorbing the punishment you deserve for your sin. He saves you from your sins, your biggest problem. He saves you from the wrath of God that is pointed at you or at him. And there's no other choice. When Jesus becomes your deliverer, the Bible is very clear. The, the same Holy Spirit that rushed upon Saul comes to live inside of you and me. The New Testament's incredibly clear about this. We're told this, Jesus taught this in the Gospel of John. So right out of Jesus' mouth. It's taught multiple times in the book of Ephesians. It's taught in the book of Galatians. It's taught in the book of Romans. The Holy Spirit of God who changed Saul and made him like super judge and great king lives inside of those of us who believe in Christ. He lives there permanently. But the New Testament is also clear that we have a responsibility to allow him to be in control because the New Testament says we can grieve the Holy Spirit who lives in us. We can quench the power of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. Not like we can take away his power but we can refuse to allow him to use his power in us. And the, Holy, the, whole, the same Holy Spirit that lived in Saul lives in us and will, will go to work through us. Now, work to do what? That's an important question. Because the Holy Spirit didn't just empower Saul to be a great like general and leader and commander. The Holy Spirit empowered Paul to give God the credit for everything that happened, to understand it was him. See, the Holy Spirit never, uh, the, the Holy Spirit never tries to make a big deal out of me. The Holy Spirit never gives me what it would take to make me look special and awesome. The Holy Spirit always works through people to let others know that Jesus Christ is special and awesome. And that Holy Spirit lives in us. And he will go to work too. The churchy way to say this is glorify Jesus Christ. You can just say it like this. He exists to make a big deal out of Jesus. That's what he wants to do in you and in me 
through you and through me. To make a big deal out of Jesus. Jesus is already a very big deal, just people don't know. So the Holy Spirit will use us as individuals and us together as the body of Christ to glorify, to make much of, to make a big deal out of Jesus Christ right here. Because that's what this part of the world needs. Right? More than we need anything else. We need rescued from our sins and we need controlled by the Holy Spirit. That's how we will get the best out of this life. That's how, that's how our, our motivation can be steered toward obedience from our hearts. And if he can use Saul, there's no one here he can't use we will just hand him sort of the reins of our heart. Let him be in control. Because come back next week, you'll start to see Saul want the credit, want people to notice him, and then it's no good. This, it's Advent. This Advent season, the reason we come up here and light candles and share stories and we remind ourselves like today, my hope is in Christ alone. My, my peace, my love, my joy is in Christ alone. We need to remind ourselves of those things or we'll try to find it elsewhere. And whenever we let the Holy Spirit be in control, he will always push us to make much of Christ in our own heart, in our own lives, in our own homes, in our own marriages, in our own jobs, and again, if he can use Saul, he can use us to his glory. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for what you did with Saul, not just to save a town of people from a terrible siege, but to teach us about the power of the Holy Spirit within us. God, thank you that through the Holy Spirit, you come to live inside somehow, each of us who have believed in Jesus Christ. And God, we want you to be the sovereign over our life, and we don't have a personal prophet, but we have your word and we have your Holy Spirit to guide us to make much of Christ. Lord, Jesus Christ is awesome and special and worthy of praise, but this world doesn't know and sometimes we don't act like that's true for us. So God, this morning, would you help us in our hearts put ourselves back under the control of the Holy Spirit, relinquish control of our lives to him, that you might make a big deal out of Jesus Christ in our lives that other people would see. To your glory, we love you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.